0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space.
1: I stayed up all night and I threw out the speech I had, and I wrote a speech about how people at this conference, with the best of intentions, were just blundering around, bumping into things because they just didn't know that the 19th century West was, many of the issues were still with us. And to assume that. And This thing was very popular, as I thought, among academics, that the frontier ended in 1890. The director of the census said that, The very yeah, noted historian yep. Frederick yep. turner said that. But well, what could that mean? Who has ever heard of a full stop of any historical process? I mean, there's always some legacy. So I gave this speech and said, someone needs to write a book that really restores a recognition of the continuity of Western American history. I'm one year out of graduate school. I haven't finished revising my first book. Who knows? I don't know if that was recorded. I hope not. But I think whatever it was I said, I don't think I said, and I'm going to write that book.
0: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to com. My guest today is a fool. For real. That's not fool in the sense of the guy with the lampshade on his head at a party. Paddy Limerick is a fool in the Shakespearean sense of the word. The fool in Shakespeare is the character who points out problems in an open and humorous way. In times of yore, it was the court jester who was the only person permitted to speak truth to the king without fearing for their life. We could use more gestures in our world today, that's for sure. This is not my label for her, by the way. It's what she proudly calls herself, and a status the presidents of both Yale University and the University of Colorado bestowed upon her, officially, in writing. Patty's also a diet pioneer, a limerick writer, and a pie thrower. Oh, and a renowned historian of the American West, with, and I quote, an unconventional ambition to apply historical perspective to contemporary dilemmas and challenges. You'll learn more about all of those in the episode ahead. Patty and I met as first-year students at the University of California in Santa Cruz many, many years ago. She's one of the most delightfully creative souls I have ever known. Talking to her is what I imagine talking with Robin Williams must have been like, with lots of detours and asides, that add color and humor to any subject. With Patty, there's a real purpose to those diversions. Her side excursions bring in literary and historical asides drawn from her voracious, creative mind. She's no ordinary college professor, as her students will tell you. To whet your appetite just a bit more, here's one of my favorite limericks from her repertoire. This one about the American West. The West has been lucky, it's true. It did not grow older, it grew new. As it got older, it got fresher and bolder. Don't you wish that could happen to you? So let's meet Patty Limerick. Patty Limerick, it has been almost forever since we saw each other, I think once or twice in Colorado, but then way, way, way back to our freshman days at UC Santa Cruz. How are you doing? I am significantly older than I used to be. (laughs) It happens. Totally
1: ridiculous turn of events. And this is very weird. Kind of hmm, late in life, I became a fitness freak, which I don't know that I particularly was when back in college, I guess I was just fit because we were young and that was what we were, but I actually became healthier probably than I was 20 years ago. So I became a a morning runner. I think once when you were in Boulder, I ran over to the restaurant where you were to have breakfast. So I do seem to feel very well, which is nothing to take for granted, knocking on wood. Many people are aged, not doing so well. But how am I doing? Probably better than I was
0: when I was 45. Well, I do recall that one time we visited in Boulder that you told me all about a diet you had pioneered.
1: Yes, so that was right at the transition. Uh, The circumstances, and there's no fudging on this, the circumstances were tragic that my first husband died of a stroke when he was 56, I was 54. And there is no program that helps anybody through that. You have, when you're widowed and you've been married for a long time, you have what would get you into a psychiatric hospital if it weren't so clearly caused by the fact that somebody that was with you for 33 years no longer was there. So I went through a phase, considerable disorientation. And one thing that I did, I I visited the potato chip aisle and the ice cream aisle. (laughs) I don't know that that's really going to help the situation. And then I just found that I was walking places and walking faster because I was walking more. And so I lost like 40 pounds and I wrote my excellent limerick pedestrian diet piece, which <laughs> people actually accepted. And I have, I have been stopped on the street by people who say, oh, look at me. And I think, okay, I'm looking at you. Why am I looking at you? Well, look what happened to me. Look what happened to me because I, I read your piece and I, I walk everywhere. So the whole point is that you don't need special equipment because the surface of the earth is pretty much continuous.
0: <laughs> oceans. Oceans a I can confirm that. I know that. I, was <laughs> I just thought, come on, Daddy, help me out with this. You, can, you can. I remember that to this day. I think you called it at the time, Patty's Very Pedestrian Diet. I thought yes. It was just a brilliant title. Yeah. And again,
1: it did have a nice impact. I think it has disappeared. Woohoo, The our digital world that was out there for a while. And I think it's gone into retirement, but it shouldn't because, because I lost 40 pounds. I became a little bit... Uh, messianic and evangelical and wanting other people to do it too, because it is quite a different way to go through the world. I mean, if somebody told me now, you're going to go for a day where you're going to carry two 20-pound sacks of potatoes with you wherever you go. You must carry these 40 pounds, and even if you're just walking upstairs, you must carry these two 20-pound bags of potatoes, I think, this is terrible. This is yeah. a dreadful really, <laughs> way to go through the world. And so now I'm going to make everyone who has issues and the perfectly understandable issues of weight control that people have. Um, now I've seemed to have dissed them and I don't mean to do that, but it is. Really
0: <laughs> but it was brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, let's go further back than our last rendezvous in Boulder. You're a native California. You were born in this little railroad and mining town of Banning and what now is called the Inland Empire. It wasn't much of an empire back then. Tell me about growing up in Banning. But we did have a radio station that was the radio station of the
1: Inland Empire. So the word empire was ridiculous but it was invoked there so banning california it was a railroad stop and it was named after the guy who developed the los angeles harbor phineas banning who i don't know if this is true or not i'm in a story i should be more careful but supposedly phineas banning got off to stretch his legs at the railroad station at this town that didn't really have a name and it is at a beautiful location between san gregorio mount san gregorio mount san Jacinto. so the theory was that phineas banning looked at this location and said If you name this town after me, I will put a lot of money, which he had, into this town. And I don't think he ever put the money into it. And I don't know. (laughs) But he got the name. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a silly name in lots of ways, because it seems to be, I sometimes just find it in newspaper headlines of banning fracking or something. Banning fracking? What does banning got to do with that? So it's a (laughs) uh, confusing place. But I was born and raised there. And that did me a world of good, because it was well, not a small town like Montana and Wyoming have small towns, but maybe eight or 9,000 people. And because I was born there, I was the second baby born in the hospital there, which had just been built, which was a, which a little bit of speaking of weight, seems to be a preoccupation here, but I was the second baby and the baby born before me was smaller. And so I held the weight record for a week or so at the hospital. Oh, very good. Yeah. So it was great because everybody knew me. I never introduced myself to anybody for my first 17 years of life because they already knew I was Pat and Grant's daughter. So that gave me a sense of, well, this is the world that we were brought into and everybody already knows us. That's interesting. It would be nice, I would think. It would be nice to meet somebody I didn't know. That would be nice, but it would be, I don't know, it's scary. It might be scary. So then as a teenager, of course, we all have to do this thing where we think, oh, I am bigger than this town. Oh, I should not be in this boring little (laughs) town, which actually was not a boring little town because we could snoop on each other so effectively. It was the kind of town where you knew if somebody's, man, if you knew if somebody's car was parked where it shouldn't have been overnight. Yeah. Anyway, so it wasn't boring, but I thought it was because I was a teenager. You have to think that. So then I got into the, oh, I need to live someplace that's bigger. I need to meet people. And so there we are on our way to the-
0: University of California. (laughs) Yeah. At the University of California, Santa Cruz. What kind of kid were you when you were seven, eight, nine, 10? Were you outdoorsy or athletic or bookish or all of the above? I was shy and bookish uh, because my
1: sister did teach me how to read when I was quite tiny. I did skip a grade. And in a small town where there's just the school I was in, there was one third grade class and one fourth grade class. I was told to go to the fourth grade class. All the third graders were saying, Patty, we're back here. You're in third grade. And I had to say, Well, no, I'm not. And the fourth graders were saying, what are you doing here? So what a wonderful training program for my later life. Uh Oh, it was not easy at all. And it gave me early familiarity of being the one of my kind and having people saying, what are you doing here? Hmm. So that turns out to have been extremely useful to me. I mean, in hindsight, I would say, I think they could have done a little bit better easing that transition but I will say that child psychology was in a kind of primitive state <laughs> you made it work I did but I was very shy I was shy except that I was episodically the opposite of shy my parents had a very strong sense of humor maybe genetic for all I know and things would strike me funny so I would be very quiet I had two big sisters who were cheerleaders song leaders and so on I was very quiet and I read all the time and when my parents and my sisters were going to go someplace, I would say, could I stay home and read? And they would say, no, you cannot, you have to get in the car. So I was shy. And then every once in a while, in some setting, what people were talking about would strike me as funny or would remind me of a funny thing I had heard or done. And so I would just suddenly burst out of the shyness and tell this funny thing that had just come into my mind. And then after I had done that, I would retreat so I've huh. that often to being a little animal that is in a burrow most of the time, but every once in a while, for reasons that no one can quite identify, this little animal comes out of the burrow and dances around in the sunlight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Rushes back into the burrow. <laughs>
1: Everybody's saying, did you see back in the burrow? And they're, oh I don't know, maybe we didn't even see that. So that was the pattern of childhood.
0: Well, that's hilarious. So UC Santa Cruz is still a great place, but it was a very novel place back in our day. We were, I think there'd been two or three graduating classes ahead of us. The school was that new. Tell me some of your memories of Santa Cruz and who the big formative influences were there.
1: Well, I couldn't have been luckier in my choice as a professor. When I look at students taking campus tours and all, I think, oh, you're not going to really know what you're getting into until you're into it. So I was really, really fortunate that my mother and father and I went through different campuses and UC Riverside was too close to Banning and so on, the process of elimination. And well, those Redwoods are pretty. So I'm not sure that our process of deliberation was much beyond that, but boy, what a good choice for me. The pass-fail, the eccentricity, the open, joyful eccentricity of a number of our professors, which I will say had quite a formative influence and come back to that. and the fact that I was a really, really good ping pong player in those days. It's gone now. So no reason to even speak of it now, but as a story, I can refer to it. So I got to Santa Cruz. I had wanted desperately to be out of my hometown. I was tired of that. When I walked into the Cal College dining hall, I thought, this is terrifying. This is not what I wanted. And actually, I'm just going to tell the story, which is brief, but it just, I walk in, I got my food on a tray. I see people who are sitting together in the dining room. I think those people really know each other. They're very close friends. I can see that they're very close friends. I should not intrude on them. I cannot do that. I won't sit with them. Then I think, okay, so I'm going to have to go sit on the far edges of the dining hall. Cause I don't know anybody here. I don't know. Can't intrude. And then I think, no, I can't do that. Because if I go off and sit on the edges, people are going to think that's what I want to do. And I'll four years from now, I'll be sitting on the edge. So I can't do that. So, <laughs> totally paralyzed, just holding my tray, totally paralyzed. And then I look around the edges and I see there are four or five people who are sitting on the edges by themselves. So I think that's it. So I, I take my tray and I walk around and I make them all get up and they all have to get up and come sit with me and sit together. <laughs> so now I have a group and the group is very, is wildly uncomfortable because they're very, Uh, Reserved people, and now I made them sit with each other. So I can't abandon them at that point. I have to say, where did we all go to high school? Let's all tell where we went. So I have to become the facilitator, discussion leader, moderator, because I have put them in a terrible position otherwise. So that to me was like one of the another moment where it's just like, okay, now (laughs) this is something that you'll want to apply later in life, and that you feel desperately uncomfortable and unable to intrude on existing groups. And not wanting to go off by yourself, this is what you'll do, is you'll bring the people who are on the edges, you'll bring them in together. So that worked really well.
0: So how did Ping Pong enter that?
1: It might not have been the very first day, but probably the next day I did discover there was a Ping Pong table. And in Banning, California, I had been pretty good, first as a backyard player and then at the Banning Team Post, which was a war on poverty with mostly african-american kids there and really good ping pong players so my game got well my game game didn't get better at first but then it did get better so i could hold my own at a ping pong table then when i got to santa cruz and boys didn't know what to do with that we'll just say that (laughs) figured out what to do with that but they didn't expect that so i was really lucky that i met gene calhoun and gene calhoun didn't have those male oversensitivities. so he just thought wow she's really good we then went on a tour of the other residential colleges and we would go into the ping pong room and Gene would kind of say, you want a player? And these boys (laughs) would go, "Sure, a player, sure. And then they would often lose and then that was fun. And then we would go to the next, uh, so that was a wonderful, now you're in college. your friend Jane is just walking around campus with you and you're getting to show that you have ping pong ringer <laughs> yeah, just, oh now we're going to introduce patty nelson who is quite shy and reads all the time it was the superstar ping pong. to introduce patty nelson and she well let's play and see what happens
0: yeah very fun so you mentioned um the pass fail system at santa cruz which for those who don't know at the time you got no letter grades with your courses in Santa Cruz, and you only took three courses per term so you could go deeper into each one and not be fiddling away with a one-credit course or a five-credit course. They were all the same value. And the only thing you got at the end was a pass or fail on a short little blurb or essay um, with actual words that described how you had done. And I mean, so if you'd Passed the class but had to struggle from behind. The professor could call out the fact that you know you had that diligence and got it done. But there were some really delightfully eccentric faculty members at Cowell, where we did our first year. Who stands out to you? Who were the most influential on you? Oh, goodness. I will say that I in life, as a young person,
1: not now, but as a young person, I might as well have been wearing a sandwich board sign that said, encouragement really wanted feel
0: free begging (laughs) for it
1: (laughs) yes so I do want to say because it's too ironic that the evaluation system where we would get a written comment it was really funny that some people I can't remember who it was but somebody had characterized them as uh, each professor had a different style and some they would sound like people who were appraising a fine wine and its subtle flavors and so on (laughs) some of if they were uh, talking about a particularly delightful chocolate or a disappointing chocolate or whatever so anyway it's pretty interesting to see how the literary style of those evaluations vary so there I am seeking encouragement and good heavens what a utopian place for someone like me so my first professor in western civ uh, required freshman course was Jasper Rose and he was really eccentric and he was British, so he always wore his robes on campus, which
0: nobody else. Which right away sets you out just a bit, yeah. And he, and he was tall, pole lanky, and one of my friends once described him as ugly as a fence post. I mean, he was certainly not a classically handsome face, distinctive face.
1: Well, and I had uh, fortunately I had prepared for this by reading a fair amount of Charles Dickens, so <laughs> when I saw Jasper Rose, I thought. Oh, I can't remember which novel, but I know that you were in one of them. I know that you were. So, so the British eccentricity thing was very powerful and very delightful. And so early on, I became sad in the Western Civ class. He was our discussion leader as well as one of the lecturers. I realized that other students had gone to much better high schools, theoretically, and they knew things about Western Civ, and I wasn't recognizing quite a few of the terms and the key names. And so I went to Mr. Rose, really sad. I mean, I was a freshman or they pretend not to be, but they're often quite sad. So in this case, I didn't pretend. I just said, oh, Mr. Rose, I am so far behind. These other students are so ahead of me, and I don't know what to do. And I, I guess, I mean, we, I know we don't have a textbook, but maybe that's what I should have. And he called us Ducky, as you would recall. <laughs> yes, I remember that. He said, oh, Ducky. He said, Ducky, you don't need to read a textbook, but I can see it might make you feel better. So here is a textbook, and you may take this take this ducky, and you'll read some of it, and then very soon you'll say, "I'm taking this back.
0: I don't want this textbook." But try this ducky, and so, so I carried <laughs> yeah, out my textbook. It was pretty boring. Yeah, discussion classes and the readings they did were much better than textbooks.
1: Utterly. and in fact, some of it, like I, I think he assigned he could he actually have assigned all of Herodotus's histories, but I did not make it all the way through Herodotus. But I said to myself, pretty good 17-year-old there. I said, I want to return to this.
0: Ah. To Herodotus.
1: Herodotus. I mean, I know now that we're supposed to be very distraught over Western Civ and its celebration of an exclusive tradition of uh, white males or whatever. But Herodotus, Herodotus wrote about a great swirl of ethnic identity. There was nothing that was any one tradition there. And so uh, and he was also just such a snoop. He was always just saying, it is said that the Egyptians have a custom of taking women to. So, I mean, so it's just, it's very interesting. And so I said, I'll come back to it. And then years passed. And then I met at the University of Colorado. I met a professor who teaches Herodotus in Greek, which was not going to help me, but he actually met with a group of us a couple of times so that I could make, I could finally finish Mr. Rose's reading. (laughs) Never too late, young people, never too late. 50 years can can finally do the reading. So Jasper was great. And Paige Smith, our founder of our college, was extraordinary, and he is on my mind a lot. These Both Jasper and he have never left my mind for very long at all, but Page had been in the 10th Mountain Division in World War II, and he had been wounded, badly wounded there, and he limped, but he played tennis, and he did all kinds of vigorous things. He often saved time, or maybe saved a little bit of discomfort on our steep campus by riding the banister down when he was, going I remember that, (laughs) so I don't, I don't recall him talking much about the war, it wasn't, it's a little weird to think of 1968, the war was only a couple of decades ago, and I, I was very fortunate to have him as a professor, and he, and Jasper Rose both said, you might like, they didn't say it directly, but they said it every, every day of their lives, they said to me, you might like this profession,
0: is that right? I wondered. I was going to ask you how you landed in history as a profession.
1: Yes, which Asper Rose wrote in one of my evaluations. Not very easy to teach, but a magnificent anti-didact. And I thought, what <laughs> is an anti-didact? So I had to look it up, and then I discovered that I was not very easy to teach, and, but I was very magnificent and resisting teachers. So that was nice. There, um, <laughs> that that I wouldn't have to file off the sharp edges of my personality I wouldn't have to say okay this is what we're going to do I did not realize this is a topic we may or may not want to return to I did not realize how much the conventional academic world is a zone of conformity uh-huh. I did not know that and how could I know that at Santa Cruz why, yeah. why yeah, well, there <laughs>
0: was none yeah, I, <laughs> yeah.
1: Conformity? I don't think so so it took a while before I really could notice that Santa Cruz. Well, Santa Cruz, it was only three or four years old. And so, of course, it was it didn't have ancient traditions that we all had to follow because we had the oh, we are lucky that we came after the first class lived in
0: the mud. Right. Trailers, we we're lucky that we don't have to live in the mud and trailers. So we had, we had proper buildings. Yeah. But it's true. The faculty really were still inventing the place at that time.
1: Of course. And then is it a coincidence that I, many years later, would then be the co-founder of an organization on campus called the Center of the American West? That did not exist before my friend Charles Wilkinson and I created it. I actually got to give a speech at Cal College where I got to say, well, of course I would do that because I didn't have any reason to think, well, you can't start something fresh. Ha. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> you can start something fresh. a whole
0: university. And
1: yeah. then you can figure out how to make it work after you've got it going. Then you can say, Well, that's not quite work. So I will just say that with Page, his status as a veteran seems to have really been with me. I'm surprised that I cannot remember anything he ever said about our full engagement in protesting the Vietnam War. As a World War II veteran, had he said to himself, this is a really different war from the one against Hitler. I mean, I don't know, but I know that I am so happy that years after his passing, I have become an affiliate of the Veteran and Military Affairs Office on my campus, And I feel that I am honoring him in that. And I also feel, when I moved here, there was a fellow who had served, Paige had been a Lieutenant and this man here in Boulder, Hugh Evans had been in his 10th Mountain Division, chain of command. And Hugh Evans loved his memories of, as he always said, my Lieutenant, which Ah. is not how we referred to Paige, but it was great to meet Hugh. And Hugh had just passed away a couple of months ago. I stayed in touch with him. He was in his nineties. He was still skiing. He was very wow. But I bring him up because he said in his obituary, I don't recall Hugh Evans ever saying this to me, but I certainly recall thinking along these lines because of him and Paige. So uh, his children said in his obituary that that Hugh Evans's advice to young people was always this: go where you were needed. Mm. And I didn't have that phrase in my mind until two months ago when I read it in Hugh Evans's obituary, I put it in my next Denver Post column, and I just, I think of that all the time, and I think that even though I didn't have go where you are needed, just those those few words, but I feel very strongly that I got that from the fellow who served with Page, but I got it from Page, and also had, I'm sure, from my mother and father as well, I don't want to take them out of that, but in terms of the what on earth guides my erratic pattern, <laughs> What was I doing? I think almost all the time, not 100 percent, but a good share of the time I was trying to follow the go where you were needed.
0: Yeah. So you have official status, as I recall, at the University of Colorado. You are the campus's official fool. I want to hear about that, but I also want to go back to when you've always been one of the really creative sort of eccentric minds in my world as well. I'm interested when the notion of being a fool really gelled for you. And what do you mean by the fool? Why is it important to be a fool or is it just a lark? Oh, it's
1: all of the above. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a lark and, and it's very nice when a lark is also important. That's the best life can offer us. Fools are important. Of course they are. Yeah. And I would say that to the degree that, okay, so I, Came to know after I graduated that some of the that we did have conventional professors on our campus, though we didn't know that because they were <laughs> keeping a low profile in their conventionalness. But yeah, they were well hidden. Who, who just thought Jasper Rose, Paige Smith, what are they doing? We went to graduate school at Princeton, and this was not what we did there. And we should be wearing tweed jackets, and they're not not really doing that. And so we did have conventional conformists, but they were not dominating. So I saw. I think it was our freshman year, we did the Greek festival and we were to be wearing togas and I remember Animal that. House, very long before Animal House. And we've known of the associations of Animal House. So, so I knew that getting dressed up in funny costumes was fun. Jasper Rose had a party at his house and we were to come as our favorite character in Western Civ. Oh, so we had a lot of royalty, kind of surprising for the late 60s, but we had some kings and queens and some philosopher kings, I suppose, and rather elite characters. But I had come as the mob in the
0: French Revolution. <laughs> How do you dress up as the mob in the French Revolution? <laughs> funny it's funny, but it is funny. I mean, you have bandages and there's red
1: paint and in, in your, so you're not had an easy time of it. And then I just was plotting revolution and there were so many kings and queens there. It was ideal. I was having a, a pretty good time at the party. And in those days, our professors could just serve us festive beverages and they didn't have to risk yeah a penalty for that so who knows what the festive beverages were doing to me but i was pretty rebellious and again many kings and queens so lots to take on there so i was having a really good time and i, I mean, it was a costume party but i thought we we're supposed to be in character as well so mr rose took me aside at a certain point and he said now patty perhaps you don't know this but in the dark the mob sometimes became uh members of the mob became servile and uh much less direct in their rebellion they would be quiet and servile so. Oh, I didn't know that. So, so it's just this wonderful floor. Tone you down a bit, girl. Not controlling, but just saying, turn it down a little bit. But then, sadly, there was no stopping me once I went off on a tear, I guess. So then I crawled on the floor, and I asked the kings and the queens to use me as a footstool. So <laughs> <that I got laughs> the standards of servility, which is, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure that anybody else was doing the character as much as I thought I was. I was doing that. So I think that you had opportunities to observe me and to think that is kind of a wild person. <laughs>
0: <laughs> your thought crossed my mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i but I rather envied your ability to be such a free spirit. Well, now it gets to your
1: question. So I guess I just did stuff, and I had bought this notion that that's why I loved higher education is that it was a place of freedom, and but I was still the little creature that would be in the burrow some share of the time and then come out against the sunlight. so, I think that by the time I got to graduate school, well, I was very scared. How can I not be scared? I went to Yale, really scared. So different, I mean- oh, <laughs> yeah, poor oh, Lord. But Paige Smith, that was interesting. Paige Smith had gone to Harvard. So people knew him. I had professors who were, they'd always found him, I guess, quite eccentric, but also because he had come back as a veteran, he was treated with some respect. So there I am. And for a while I was scared. And then when I got, to teach classes i was really shy and i tried everything i could think of to get out of center stage i mean these were just discussion sections so Lots of role plays, lots of interactive fun games. That old TV show, the match game. I would ask a question, everyone would have to write it down on a card, and then there'd be a prize for the people who got the most matches. <laughs> I mean, it was just—it was just get me out of center stage and get everybody else going. So that's not the worst way to start teaching. It was really good. In fact, I'm still a little bit surprised to see how much we still have sage on the stage with a professor. So I had writer's block and I was going nowhere and writing my dissertation, which was not good as a situation, that was not good. I loved teaching, I got a lot of teaching positions, I loved that, then, oh no, the students would go away for the summer. Oh no, how could they do that to me? <laughs> so then one summer when I was not gonna be successful in writing my dissertation again, because that's what I did every summer, was not write my dissertation, I thought, well, I need to just get, I'll get the local underground newspaper and I'll find some things to do here. Keep me occupied. So I, I went to an open psychodrama session at the New Haven Center for Delving Into People's Souls or something. I don't know what it's called, but it was very remarkable. That was really interesting. I saw a workshop for clowns or fools. Uh-huh. A man named Bill Carpenter. And I thought, I'll try that. So, I mean, it's a little bit fuzzy that sometimes we say clowns, but we don't really want to be bozo in the least. We are not in the bozo mode. So it's really about fools. And Bill Carpenter's workshop, is a
0: remarkable man, uh, was the fool's journey. So what is it about a fool? I mean they seem close to synonyms a lot of the time. So what is what's important about a fool? A fool has a shakespearean tradition going a medieval
1: europe tradition of the king or queen recognizing that you will build up bad luck if you don't have someone in the kingdom who can who can speak honestly. As a king or queen you don't want most people speaking honestly and uh-huh. you will punish But you have to have some discharge of bad luck. And that means that you have to have a fool who just says stuff and you don't cut the fool's head off. You don't do that. Ah. That's really bad luck.
0: Really bad luck. The guy who points out the lack of clothing on the king. Right. Right.
1: Uh, Which can infuriate the king. But the king, unless the king is just wanting to bring down his authority, has to say, ha ha, ha ha. ha. Who sticks by King Lear? Right. The fool. You could do better, I suppose, in your ally, but if you've alienated all your other allies, that's, that's who you have. So I took this workshop with an amazing man, Bill Carpenter, and most of his participants were psychiatric outpatients who were in trouble. I mean, we, we're now we're all, oh, mental health, mental health, pandemic, but in graduate school with my companions in the Fools Workshop, I was very lucky to have friends who really did. I would, I'm really of the brain chemical explanation that it just, it wasn't something that they could just work harder or push themselves mm-hmm. harder mm-hmm. and pull it together. But the fool's journey stuff worked in lots of ways for them in a, in a therapeutic manner that there were two of us in this first workshop who were what we would call normal neurotics. We were just regular old people with our share of neuroses. Yeah. But the others in our group were psychotic, episodically, not Always, so that was an amazing way to be in graduate school. And New Haven, the downtown streets where troubled souls hang out, are just the same streets that troubled souls or Yale undergraduates hang out. So it was just an interesting mixture of people there. So that's where I got into the Fools Project. Then it led to another, and I was still working on the writer's block problem. Well, I wasn't working on it at all. I was just floundering. In that. <laughs> and then I decided that I might as well bring my worlds together. And I wrote a letter to the president of Yale, which was really lucky that he was Bart Giamatti, who was a Renaissance literature scholar, went on to be baseball commissioner, which is
0: interesting. Yeah, it
1: sort of fits together, but he knew exactly what was going on when I wrote him and said that I wanted to be appointed official fool or jester. At that point, I was kind of using those two terms as synonyms. And so I... Submitted my letter of application and he wrote back and thanked me for that, but then he wrote and said that he was both jester and president, and he would. (laughs) And he said uh, he would be reluctant to give up the position that gave him the greater pleasure. Great, great response. There's something that has been lost. I have a wonderful set of files of the Fool's Project. They're great. On our website, South American West, there's a me going back through that history if anyone has nothing better to do with themselves and wants to watch that. But somehow, I had to have been the one who did it. This got into the New York Times. Uh. So uh, the New York Times used to have a thing called Notes on People, and it would be about Paul and Linda McCartney and people like that. But there I was one day, it said, and it quoted from our correspondence, it said, the first line was, Considering how many people are qualified for the position, you would think there would be many applicants. (laughs) Patty Nelson is the first person to apply to be official fool of Yale. And then there were quotations from the president saying that he was both jester, except that I had changed the terms a little bit. So he was basically saying that he was both fool and president, which is different. Uh, And then, what was so wonderful? Who would think such a thing would be so wonderful? Then I quoted from my own letter of application, which had said, "This was probably 1979, I guess. I had been in graduate school since 1972 and was getting nowhere in finishing my dissertation, and that alone should qualify me for the office." (laughs) (laughs) So that was quoted in the New York Times, and then it went into the International Herald Tribune, and people who were having friends who were having breakfast in Paris saw this thing and said, "So I thought." Oh my that's interesting now i have said that i am really not getting anywhere in my dissertation and now it is international news (laughs) but then i thought well okay it happens to be true i wasn't and i did finish within a few months of that i did write a dissertation and i got a job at harvard and i'm not going to say that that going on record in the uh, new york times as an official fool aspirant that that was what saved me from writer's plot but but it might have been <laughs> it had no role. and then when i got the job at harvard i wrote a letter of resignation to president giamatti and said i could no longer serve as official fool and that i had come to realize that whether or not he had appointed me in a democracy it is the land of the self-appointed fool and so it was really <laughs> my place to take that position and i hoped i had served the university well so on. Well. so he wrote a letter accepting my resignation saying what a fine job i had done as fool which sort of suggests that he thought I was really the fool. Because, I mean, you don't write a letter of acceptance of a resignation to somebody you never had <laughs> employed. That would be madness. So then he said, uh, Derek Bach was the president of Harvard then. And so President Giamatti said he would be more than happy to recommend me to his, his colleague, President Bach, since Harvard needed my services more. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, so now I am the official fool at the University of Colorado, leaping forward.
0: Wonderful. So your PhD work had to do with the American West, and then you moved out to Colorado in the, the mid-1980s. But I'm interested in how you were known as one of the pioneering authors of the works around the new American West. Tell me what that means and how how the theme, how the notion came to you.
1: Yes. So I wrote my dissertation once I finally wrote the damn thing, I wrote it on deserts and attitudes towards deserts, because at that time, I'm so old. Well, you're so old, too, because we were born same <laughs> year. We're both so old that the writing that existed on attitudes towards nature, the history of attitudes towards nature, was almost entirely about green places then, forests, meadows, and so on. The hills of Vermont. And there I am from Banning, California, right on the edge of the desert. And so I think, well, there's a whole bunch of land there that seems like it would be important. So It certainly went through different configurations and definitions of what it was I thought I was going to do, but it turned out to be profiles of eight or nine people who had been influential in experiencing deserts and writing about them. So that was my first book called Desert Passages. Then, back in the writer's block days, uh, this is a little bit embarrassing, but good news for young folks to, to build a successful career, you can kind of lie, but then you have to deliver on your lie very complicated so I went for job interviews in 1979 went for job interviews not coincidentally just when the fool's news had broken into the- <laughs> so there I am at job interviews and the people who were going to interview me said we need to know you're going to finish your dissertation you have your PhD or we can't interview you I said interview me well at that time there were notes aplenty there were, there were stacks and stacks of notes but there was nothing that any committee was going to make sense of at that stage so I go to these interviews they said, well, when exactly are you going to finish? I said, I will have a degree in the spring. And at that time, that seemed like nonsense. And I had a degree in the spring. Yeah, you got to make good. Yeah, so it was technically, it was a lie, but then it turned out to be true. It was, it was a prophecy. It was a prophecy. I know we are in a fake news era where this is difficult when we play with truth on that one. But I said something that at the time I thought, oh, man. So then I got on the train to go back to New Haven from New York on the train, I thought, "Uh oh,
0: now you got to do it. <laughs>
1: I have Now lied to Harvard, to Berkeley. I have really lied on a big scale here. Then I thought, well, this is so liberating. I, I hope that young people will hear this because I thought, just a moment here. I don't have enough time to write a really good dissertation. And dissertations are virtually unreadable. You would never say to somebody, I just read the most you might have to read this. I'll get you a copy of it. It's so fun, it's so readable. (laughs) You don't do that. It's not what a dissertation is. So then I said to myself, what I hadn't said in years, I never came to, never realized. I said, Well, I can write a crummy dissertation. I can do that. And they're all kind of crummy. They're they're not they're not grand works of art. But I've been trying, I've been acting like that's what it was. So I got off the train in New Haven. I thought, I'm doing it. I'm just writing a bad it can be bad. That's fine. So I finished and that was really good. Well, at the job interview with Harvard, uh, they asked me how I would teach a Western American course. And this was 1979 and Western American history was probably the last of the fields of American history to really shift to a full recognition of, as we would say now, diversity, inclusiveness. It was still very much on the Westward movement of white people and its main textbooks and, so I said in my interview at a hotel in New York, I said, well, how would I teach a Western history class? I just reverse it. I just reverse it. I just, I put white people and white pioneers on the edges, the periphery, they'd be there. I have to add them in the story, but my attention would be really on Indian people. It would be on uh, Mexican, Mexican Mexican-American people, Spanish settlement. It would be on Russian settlements in California. It would be the, look who's here, look who's here version. And then the white folks from the Eastern United States would arrive, but the story would be well underway. And so I'm just, oh yeah, this would be really good. So they went, hmm, that's interesting. And then it turned out very difficult to execute because they hired me and I got to teach a Western history class, but it's clear to me what I was going to do is it wasn't that hotel room. And (laughs) I thought, well, that wasn't the worst idea. And then, uh, so I, I take my job at Harvard in 1980. I'm not totally turning the Western history world. I'm doing my best, but it's still kind of a, here we go. First, all in the British colonies moving westwards. So, so then I was invited, a friend of mine from Banny, California and in, in Idaho, got me set up to speak at a major conference on Western American issues of the time it was about the energy boom of the 1970s mm, yep. and so suddenly there i am plunked into this world of people trying to navigate in the present with a really distorted view of western history so i am suddenly plunked into this group and they're saying things like well this is very disordering, these boom towns that we had in the 1970s mostly men very disordered uh that was a really what are we supposed to do with that we're not used to we don't know what to do with that i'm thinking You guys have seen this before. before. Yeah. Uh, Right. Have you heard of this? Have you? You think you haven't seen this? So I threw out the speech I had given. It's kind of an amusing story about how I had to stay up all night anyway. But I stayed up all night and I threw out the speech I had. And I wrote a speech about how people at this conference with the best of intentions, weren't historians, the ones who weren't historians and some who were, were just blundering around, bumping into things because they just didn't know that the 19th century West was many of the issues were still with us. And to assume that, and this thing was very popular as I thought among academics, that the frontier ended in 1890. The director of the census said that, the very yeah. noted historian yep. Frederick yep. Turner said that, but well, what could that mean? Who has ever heard of a full stop of any historical process? I mean, there's always some legacy. So I gave this speech and said, someone needs to write a book that really restores the continuity, a recognition of the continuity of Western American history. I'm one year out of graduate school, I haven't finished revising my first book, who knows, I don't know if that was recorded, I hope not, but I think, whatever it was I said, I don't think I said, and I'm going to write that book, I think, I I mean, I was one year out of graduate school, and I was very ambitious and madness, so, but a couple of people came up and said, oh, when's that book going to be out, and I thought, well, I have no idea, I mean, I don't even know who's going to write it, and then I thought, oh, they think I'm going to write it. Well, now that's very odd. Where would they get that? So there was a really nice man from the University of Oklahoma Press at the conference. And I I liked him very much. And I wrote a first round of a proposal for him. University of Oklahoma Press rejected that for being too much an exercise in white guilt was what they said. Ah. Now we're going to put Indian people front and center and so on. So boo-hoo, started with a rejection, that'll happen. And then because I was at Harvard, people from major New York presses would come to Harvard to talk to the important people, but they couldn't fill their calendars with important people. Well, they probably could have, but they would sometimes just be wandering in the basement of the history department. And so two, Helen Wang and W.W. Uh, w. Norton, two editors from those presses came and said, well, what are you working on now? I said, well, oh, I have this proposal, but it died. And so what should we do? And so they said, well, dress it up a little bit and send it in. So I actually had a tiny, tiny, tiny bidding war between two New York publishers. Woohoo! So I went with W.W. Norton and the really kind man, Ed Barber, was my editor. And he that was taking a risk because there I am just I'm going to put Western history together in a different way. Mm. So the session back in the in the hotel, (laughs) New York Hotel, where I'm going to reverse everything for the, for the Western history course, I get to actually try to say, what would this be if I did that? So then one thing led to another, Kevin Costner made a film, uh, Dances with Wolves, that caused the editor at People Magazine to send a very nice woman, Vicki Bain, to interview me about Kevin Costner's changing of the field of Western history. So People Magazine did a profile of me, pretty funny because I do own I do own Stetson's, she says putting on her black stetson yeah i rarely wear them i don't wear them that often and for a while once i moved to boulder and became better known whenever a photographer from an eastern news magazine or newspaper came to boulder they would make me put on my fringe jacket and my stetson and go outside and sit on a rock and i would say I really don't do that very often, and they'd say, but you were a Western writer, so you will have to put on your stats and your French jacket and put it on a rock. So you got to look the part the way we think the part looks. So uh, People Magazine, there's a 1990 or whenever uh, Dances with Wolves came out, there's a picture of me looking very much like a Western writer sitting on a rock. (laughs) Vicki Bain, a very fine reporter, interviewed me. By that point, everything had moved forward. W. W. Norton uh, took the proposal for for what became the Legacy of Conquest. Legacy of Conquest came out in 1987. Various things were underway. And Vicki Bain said, well, what is the book about? And the book is 320 pages or something. So I thought, oh boy, this is gonna be a little bit tough. I was moving a little bit more into the public intellectual world, but I'm not sure that the brevity thing had really come to me yet. But answering Vicki Bain's question, I said, well, it's really three words beginning with C. And then maybe one more c word after that. So Vicky Bain took this, and so that is my answer. What happened? What changed in the field of Western history that I, by bringing together the work of hundreds of other people, it had been fragmented, it had been specialized. But I was very fortunate to bring it together. First, see continuity. We already got that. That rather than a so-called end of the frontier, that Western history ran continuously, and the issues that had stirred up the 19th century were still with us. They might have moved from battlefields to courtrooms, but Indian rights, Indian claim on territory is still totally there. Water rights. Water rights, absolutely. So continuity. Second C, convergence, rather than, oh, here come the mostly white men, a few white women moving westward as the major directionality of Western history. No, people came from every starting place on the planet, and some people were already here for a long time. Convergence of people just starting from everywhere and coming together and, and then trying to figure each other out and sometimes trying to kill each other. Third was conquest. Frontier, the F word was, it was so detached from everything else that was happening on the planet. Europeans were moving everywhere. They were moving into Africa, they were moving into Australia, New Zealand, Canada. India, and that was seen as invasion, and depending on how things went, conquest. United States had chosen a different form of, of understanding its history, and it was a frontier of expanding opportunity and democracy. And what on earth could support that? Because we have native people in all of those places, indigenous people, and then we have invaders. And then when the dust settles, there's more power in the hands of the invaders, in many cases, than there are in the original people. So that was what the third one was conquest. And that was seen as inherently a condemnation of the nation which no because when i was still at harvard i i just plagued all the other historians historians of every part of the planet and i would say is the word conquest inherently a condemnation and they'd say no it happens it happens so and then the the fourth c that i did feel i had to add was complexity that the American West was just as complex a place as any and to sort people out as as good guys and bad guys, white cats and black cats. No, that didn't work any place on the planet. It certainly didn't work here. Then I was very fortunate to get funding to do an exhibit through state humanities councils, which came with money for a conference, which we held in Santa Fe. It It was an exhibit on trails in the four corner states in Wyoming, exhibit on trails, which is a really good exhibit. It opened, in Santa Fe, and we had a conference. I had been doing nothing but trails for months. And so I just wanted <laughs> something else. So I called it Trails, Toward a New Western History. And then the Washington Post guy, Tom Reed, came and covered that conference. And before that, he said to me, what is this thing called the New Western History? So I wrote a one-page statement that said, what is the New Western History? Basically, the four Cs.
0: Mm-hmm. and then
1: I had that just in case anyone else was curious so good heavens in the Washington Post it said in a paper limerick distributed at the conference and you just think oh man <laughs> it was one page I didn't even feel the there was a 40 page you'll want this document before you go home put it in your suitcase I wasn't doing that in the least but anyway that when the Washington Post did the story on the new Western history, then we were moving. And then the New York Times guy, Richard Bernstein came in after that. And then we were,
0: because the New York Times had covered it, we were a thing. We were a thing. You were a thing. So you've since, as you mentioned earlier, started the the Center for the American West at Colorado. And we're close to time here. I don't want to be disrespectful of your time, but one of the things that you are noted for, as somebody put it, is An unconventional ambition to apply historical perspective to contemporary dilemmas and challenges. Is is that sort of the motive of the Center for the American West? Tell us what and tell us what it does. It was created long before I knew
1: what I was going to do with it. And my wonderful colleague in Western American studies, uh, Charles Wilkinson, a law professor here, did American Indian law. He did public land law. So he had a a grounded sense of why we were going to do this. I had never liked the idea that historians were just supposed to go into rooms and talk to other historians. i had always wanted history to be part of the problem-solving world, but I really didn't have any particular vision of what that was going to mean institutionally. So when the Center American West was created in the late 80s, we had a director who, who had even less of a clue of what it was gonna be than I had. And so it didn't do much for a while. Then when he left, I thought, well, let's give it a try. By that point, The Legacy of Conquest was out in the world. That book was getting me invited to federal land management, leadership conferences, all kinds of stuff was happening. So that notion that history could be fully engaged as part of figuring out how we got into our conflicts and dilemmas and thinking better about about them, one bedrock is that all of these dilemmas and conflicts originated long before anyone who's alive now was born. So that nonsensical stance of blaming each other, of finding some other people to condemn and excoriate in public shouting matches is just silly. That's just a historic. So all these things originated in an era before the present. And we would just be blindsided if we tried to deal with them without that. Then I started getting invitations. One, I just have to bring this up because it's pretty funny. I was invited to speak at a conference on space policy. Hmm. Because the space program, NASA certainly uses the frontier metaphor. Absolutely. Of, yep. So I got to speak to a, and I actually have a publication on space policy because of because of that. Although you should know that the one I've tried to conceal this from you for years, the one evaluation <laughs> I got at Santa Cruz, it was one evaluation that was kind of like if we could give grades, it's not clear to us that this would be passing. It was my astronomy class. Uh-huh. I thought we were going to look at stars and then we were calculating Kepler's laws and so on. It was a shock to me. And I never really got over it. <laughs> so, so, narrow visit on pass fail with a fail there, but I got through it. Anyway, so that just grew and grew and grew as a set of
0: opportunities. Yeah. Uh, so, you can, you writing and doing analytical work? Or are you convening groups? I mean, it. Yeah, you it. what kind of stuff goes on there?
1: Well, our slogan is turning hindsight into foresight. Ah. Uh, the pandemic certainly well, reordered everybody's life, I used to travel a lot and give talks to groups of people doing practitioner kind of work. And I did speak at a a conference that that was in Washington and Carl Sagan was on the program with me. It was quite something I did get to do a little bit on the space program. So anyway, all kinds of topics, pretty unlimited of federal agencies in particular, EPA, all kinds of groups for good reason said, could you help us? Now, many of the people in the audience were confused about what I was doing there, I spoke once in Las Vegas at the International Radioactive Waste Management Conference.
0: Just where you expect to find a historian.
1: Yes. And you could, you could see engineers and managers, project managers sitting in that room, just thinking, am I in the wrong room? (laughs) What is she doing here? And I would say 40 people asked me for copies of my talk after that.
0: Oh, wow.
1: The West is a place where we put things that we don't know what else to do with. It's got a history. yeah yeah. so it just seemed unlimited and then I got I guess I was never going to be a passive figure in any of this but I was in a conversation with some friends and realized that that I'd always been just preoccupied with the Department of the Interior and there was no reason why I couldn't do a series of inviting the former secretaries and interviewing each of the former secretaries I could do that so I did that I had almost all from Stuart Udall through to Gail Norton wow the one who took over after Jim Watt departed from his position, left interior. When I tried to talk him into coming to do an interview, he said, I was only in briefly. And then he said, Patty, you need to know I'm an FIP. You're an FIP, which stands for formerly important person. So he didn't come. But I did interview them and got a really great grounded sense because I started with Stuart Udall and his Mormonism was a key part of what created him. He didn't stay in that church particularly, but he was very oriented towards religious thoughts about nature. So because I began with him, I talked about religious belief with everybody. Cecil Andrus, the wonderful governor, really interesting character. I kept asking him in the interview, well, Governor Andrus, what was religion to you in all this? He'd say, doesn't have anything to do with it. Don't know why you're asking me that. But then he would keep using phrases like the the world is the creator gave it to us or something, and finally I just kept saying, okay, Secretary Andrus, you keep using these phrases. And he said, all right, okay, I'm a Lutheran. Okay, I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about that. So, okay, I thought you were. So we had all kinds of interesting glimpses of who these people were, and the notion of the boring bureaucrat, no, didn't come up at all. And that's where I'm so delighted to be in the company of someone who is so well profiled in the fifth risk.
0: <laughs> Thank you. So. I know you're working on turning some of that material into yet another book with, I guess, the working title of Hair Raising Tales from the Department of the Interior. How's that that going? The writer's block has been vanquished? Obviously, I so
1: enjoy chatting that if the choice, if there's a fork in the roads and I can sit by myself and write or I can chat, I think we know which. Yeah, pen goes down. doesn't need to help us with that one. We know which road I'm going to take on that one. So I don't do very well at finding the, good Lord, the extended units of time that people who write books have to identify and stick with that. So I haven't done that. I would very much like to write the hair-raising tales from the Department of the Interior because they are hair-raising and I and people don't realize that every, everything that anyone cares about in the American West, there's an interior official standing at the focal point of that that issue. So I, I would like to do that at some point. But in the meantime, the wonderful folks at the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation gave me a major grant in applied history to take what has been so satisfying and so meaningful and rewarding to me and to offer those skills to young historians. So oh. lucky me, lucky, I mean, for my life stage, well, for our life stage, it is just the perfect thing to be doing because the applied history thing, I couldn't, Imagine, whatever I dreamed of back in olden days at Santa Cruz, and I don't even know what it was. I, was, I don't know what I was doing, I was trying to get encouragement from delightful older professors, whatever it was I was doing, though, it never would have occurred to me that this could be where I would, that I would have a major grant and that I would work. I have two programs, the Mellon Foundation program that allows me to do academic skills repurposing workshops with young historians who have been trained in the academic manner and who are thereby not entirely positioned to reach wider audiences with their yeah. knowledge and understanding. And then I also have the John and Kathy Rosenblum Scholars Program, and that is for young historians who have just recently finished their dissertation prospectus and are just launching on. Zoom turned out to be totally great with this. We did it in person starting in the fall of 2019, and then obviously we moved. Yeah. And I mean, for uh, people from Rhode Island to San Diego, it's just- That's great. So am I writing a book? Well, no, but I am playing <laughs> multiple, all shoulders to the wheel, all hands on deck roll with a whole bunch of books in which I might, if I'm fortunate, I might write an introduction. I might be very good. Acknowledgements. And this, this after this excellent conversation, I'm speaking at a class at a university, a group of graduate students who are, who are learning about this whole world of taking their findings to a wider audience. So I'm I'm giving a talk at a graduate seminar at actually University of Southern California this afternoon. So it's just, it is so fun. And then all this wonderful, extremely wonderful set of opportunities to be in the company of student veterans, Santa Cruz, total peace, Nick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And never to the best of my memory, I don't think we ever condemned any serving soldier. I don't think we ever said this was their idea.
0: No, never. Yeah.
1: So I feel it is a little bit odd to be as closely connected to military folks as I am now, Uh, I think back to my protest days, and maybe that's even better, maybe that's even better, but there again, uh, to have had Paige Smith as a principal mentor,
0: this was going to happen at some, at some point, yeah. Uh, My uh, one regret is that I've not had the time to ask you about pies in the face, because that's another hilarious part of your world, but what's your favorite flavor of pie? Oh, well, pie is not actually, it's a very funny thing, once you are into serious pie
1: throwing in the soupy sales manner and, and you're at peace with that and you welcome that, you know, you're not really going to have much encounter with the content of the pie. I mean, you're pretty, <laughs> sorry, I take that back. You're going to be encountering it very intensely, but it's going to be all over your head. Yeah. <laughs> so it would be a terrible thing if I guess I would probably like some kind of chocolate cream pie or something. It's probably my, well, I really prefer cake, I think, to pie. That's a terrible thing. But I would never <laughs> want to be hit with a cake. That would make no sense to be hit with a cake. But if you are into this sport, as my late husband, Jeff Limerick, and I were, then you have a pie tin. That's important because it should resemble a pie, but you just put whipped cream in it. Ah. And that is good because licking your lips
0: after you have been. Yes. What's wrong with that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you you are many unique standout things, but one that you definitely are is I'm quite sure you must be the only woman who married the first man that put a pie in her face.
1: Now, that was a disappointment at Santa Cruz. Well, this was very complicated, but you may recall an unhappy episode where a student, I don't know if it was a protester or whatever, but a student hit our treasured professor, Jasper Rose, in the face with a pie. It was disrespectful and it should never have happened. The only people who get hit with pies should be people who wanted that and who were eager for that. Never do it without consent. That's terrible. And so I said to several of our friends, I don't think you were one of them in that particular moment because you would have remembered and you, but I just, <laughs> there's three people that happened to be with me. I said, I don't think they should have thrown pie at Jasper Rose. That was wrong. I would love that myself. I would love that. And my birthday was in May, is May still, remains that way. And so these friends said, we'll do that. This is like five months, six months before that. They said, we'll remember that. We'll have a pie in May so on may 17th in 1972 i'm creeping around corners your birthday <laughs> yeah yes and I'm, I'm just thinking they said they would do it and who knows when they're going to do it well they forgot all about it then i go to graduate school at yale where you wouldn't expect this see that much promise here but I, <laughs> I tell people at a dinner that this was supposed to happen that they said they would do it and then they forgot and they didn't do it jeff limerick remembered and so just a minute or two after midnight on May 16th, 1973. I was living in the hall of graduate studies, knock on the door and I opened the door and there was Jeff Limerick with a pie.
0: <laughs> well done, Jeff. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's not the normal, well, it should probably be considered for more courtships.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to innerastra.space.